Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Caitlin Tan. Today, we'll hear about family found in unexpected places, like a West Virginia family who got a letter from a sister in Austria that they didn't even know they had. When we got this letter, we all wrote back. And a young man in North Carolina is inspired to learn old-time music when he sees a jaw-dropping performance one night by a fiddle player named Fred McBride. Turns out, they're related. And she said, Fred McBride, she said, you've seen him at every family reunion you've been to since you were a kid. But not everyone has a family to turn to. We'll meet some foster kids like Jared Mitchell. He was shuffled between group homes, psychiatric hospitals, and detention centers since he was 11 years old. I was a child, a very young child at that, facing a courtroom. I definitely needed, like, a bigger brother, like someone that could teach me how to get through it. We'll hear what happened to Jared and other surprising stories about the power of family. Stay with us inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Caitlin Tan. Today's episode, The Power of Family Ties. If you live in Appalachia, or for that matter, if you've ever lived in Appalachia, you are a part of our family. It defines us. We start with a story about discovering family in unexpected ways. Or maybe discovering unexpected family. Margaret Bogenhuber grew up in Austria without any knowledge of her real dad and without any brothers or sisters. Years later, after her mom passed away, she did a little research and discovered she has roots in West Virginia. So when she worked up the courage to reach out to her Appalachian family, she expected they'd be angry. But something else happened. They formed a bond that's lasted several decades and traversed an ocean. Last summer, reporter Emily Allen joined up with the Nestor family at a recent reunion to hear their story. Margarete Bogenhuber komme aus Oberndorf bei Salzburg, Österreich, Austria. This is Margaret Bogenhuber. She grew up in the small town of Obendorf, Austria. Not as small as Pickens, but small. It's right outside the city of Salzburg, which is like a hundred times bigger. Obendorf is known for the Silent Night Chapel, the first place where the song Silent Night was sung. Margaret lived near here, with her stepfather and her mother, who worked in a chocolate factory. Did you get to eat a lot of chocolate? Yes. <laughs> Margaret's childhood wasn't always so sweet. A lot of it, she recalls, was lonely. Margaret says she spent a lot of time wondering who her biological father was and longing for siblings. Family, ich bin ein Einzelkind. This is Margaret again with her daughter, Doris, translating. So, so, so she has no siblings in Austria. She grew up alone with her mom and the stepfather. Margaret didn't find out until after she was married in the mid-60s that her biological father was a man named Clinton Nestor, who had traveled to Austria as a mess sergeant in World War II. Margaret didn't know about the four other Nestor kids, her siblings who lived in Pickens. 
she often worried about reaching out because she was scared her dad's family would be unwelcoming. It was in irgendeine Familie. She asked her mother, can you tell me who is my father? And her mother said, oh no, I don't tell you because I don't think it's good to damage another family. Margaret was in her mid-30s when she finally got up the nerve to write her first letter to her father. Over the years, she would continue to send him dozens more, but they all came back unopened. No reaction, no response, no. It turns out he wasn't responding to the notes because a relative of his who worked at the post office was returning them. Margaret didn't know that the letters weren't getting to her father. All she knew were the experiences of other people in Obendorf who had American fathers, who also had been rebuffed. So Margaret was surprised to finally get something back years after she sent her first letter. A new postmaster had taken over the local post office— where she had been sending her letters. He let Margaret know that her father had died a few years earlier. He gave her the new address for Clinton's family in Pickens. The next letter she wrote in 1979 has become a sort of family treasure to the Nestors. In fact, the letter is so important to them that half-brother Don Nestor keeps a typed version in a three-ring binder to this day. I can read it. (coughs) This is Deb Morgan, maiden name Nestor, Margaret's half-sister. I was told from the postmaster of your town, Mr. Shahan, that your husband died several years ago. I am very sorry about that. Since my husband, since your husband, Clinton Nestor, born on the 4th of April, 1915, was my father. Please don't be angry with me now, since a child cannot choose their parents. So, when we got this letter... We all wrote back. When the first note arrived in Austria from West Virginia, Margaret was ecstatic. And I was so so happy. The families continued to correspond by writing letters and by phone. We were all excited, our mom included. She was very excited to meet Margaret. (laughs) My mom would say, what did we talk about before Margaret? As the Nestors learned more and more about this newfound half-sister in Austria, Don says they all ended up learning more about their father and a part of his life he had kept hidden from the family while he was alive. This is the diary that he kept. This is the actual... This is the actual diary. While he was in Europe, Clinton Nestor recorded his day-to-day life in a journal. It starts in March of 1944, and it ends... Uh, in uh, two years later, when he came home in 45. Well, at the end of 45, he came home. Don says this diary has always been around, but the family didn't give it much notice until they began corresponding with Margaret. The entries aren't too detailed. Each day probably just has a couple of sentences to it. But Don says it's a good glimpse into a time in his father's life that he had kept private from his children. For instance, he mentions about seeing... Uh, Betty Hutton and Bob Hope in a USO show. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Betty Hutton. I'm just an Arkansas maid who's trying to. He mentions about uh, seeing, uh, staying with people uh, that that were kind and friendly. Mentions about he has names of people here that were killed in his unit. Uh, you, you get the glimpse of how war is hard on everyone, and it, you know, the 
the casualties of war are on both sides. So after reading the diary, what would Don want to ask his father? Did you ever think it would come to this? Yeah, yeah. Did, in your wildest imagination, do you, do you think a bunch of American and Austrian citizens would be sitting here in, in Pickens? In 1981, Margaret and the Nesters finally got to meet face-to-face in West Virginia. They have since met several times over the years, sometimes in Austria, sometimes in the United States. This summer, they got together once again at a family picnic in Pickens. Again, here's half-sister Deb Morgan talking about Margaret, about the time they first met nearly 40 years ago. And I think you spent most of your time in Pickens, right? The yeah, first yeah. the first time. Yeah. Yeah. So we just sat around like this or played horseshoes or drank beer. <laughs> yeah. A lot, a, lot, a lot like this, yes. Earlier in August, more than 30 members of the combined three-generation Austrian and American family met on Sister Terry's farm in Pickens. Her brother Don Nestor says his children, his nieces and his nephews, all know Margaret as their aunt. They've grown up on this story. It's sort of become a family legend. I think, too, the grandchildren, that generation, they're still family. It's as close as, as us. It is. As the family sits around eating pulled pork sandwiches and watching the grandchildren play, several members of the family say the big lesson here is perseverance. If Margaret hadn't continued to write year after year, the Nesters wouldn't have known she existed. And she would have never found her siblings on the other side of the globe. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Emily Allen in Pickens, West Virginia. Emily is a Report for America Corps member. She reported that story in the summer of 2019. You can read some of the letters the Nestor family exchanged with their Austrian sister and see some of the photos they've kept over the years at wvpublic.org. Today on Inside Appalachia, we're talking about family. Of course, not everyone has a traditional family. Next, we'll hear from several young Appalachians who are trying to find their way in the world without their biological mom or dad. They're former foster care kids. Compared with younger children, teenage foster kids are far less likely to be placed with a family. Every situation is unique, and not all foster families are good. But when it works out well, it can make all the difference. Roxy Todd has this look at one young man who did find a foster home. JJ Caton is wearing purple sneakers and a purple plaid shirt the day I meet him. We're sitting in an outdoor amphitheater on his college campus, which appears mostly deserted because of the pandemic. I'm 20 years old. I'm a second year sophomore at Glumble State College. I reside in Braxton County, West Virginia. His therapy dog, a black lab named Pepper, wags her tail beside him and presses her cheek against his chest. She is so sweet and good. JJ's dog is a new addition in his life. His therapist helped him get her because he was feeling lonely. His therapy dog is also helping him find resilience and cope with trauma he experienced as a child. When he was 12, JJ was taken into foster care pretty abruptly. A CPS worker was called in to pick him up during New Year's Eve. He recalls his dad had been drinking, and the cops ended up at his house. They took me to the DHHR in Flatwoods in Braxton County, and I ended up staying there the night. I think I probably either slept on the floor or on some chairs, to be honest. 
Afterward, JJ was placed with a foster family. He was lucky. Out of every 10 teenagers in foster care in West Virginia, four end up being sent to a group home or shelter. JJ's birth mom, by the way, lives in the Philippines. JJ came with his dad to the U.S. when he was two. He says he doesn't have a relationship with his mom. After spending a little time with the foster family, JJ was returned to his father's home in Braxton County, which is where he wanted to be. Because it's where I was most comfortable at. It's where I was raised for a long part of my life. I knew he needed me. But it wasn't safe. JJ's dad physically abused him. It'd get to the point where I was afraid when he was angry. Time and again, CPS returned to take JJ away. He could have been sent to various group homes or shuffled from place to place. Instead, he was consistently placed with Jill Cooper and her family. After JJ had been with us the first time, we kind of built a relationship with the judge. So when he was back the second and third time, the judge actually would call us directly and say, hey, you know, are you willing to take him back? JJ formed a bond with the Coopers. With them, he had a home base he could return to again and again, while the rest of his life continued to be topsy-turvy. He kept in contact with his dad and still had hopes they would be reunited. Then things went downhill quickly. First, in 2015, his dad's home flooded. My dad went back there after it had been renovated slightly, but I'd still say it was unfit to live in. My dad had also gotten pneumonia and COPD during this part of his life also, so that place was definitely unfit to live in. Not long after the flood nearly destroyed their home, JJ's dad passed away. The Coopers offered to let him stay with them permanently. My foster dad said, we'd really like it if you'd stay with us. Their kids and their animals liked me, and I liked their kids and their animals, so that it was a place I was comfortable in, and I felt like with all my benefits that I already had in the state of West Virginia, it was the best course for me to go down. This was five years ago. Even though he's aged out of foster care, the Coopers are his legal guardians. JJ says it can be tough to be a foster child in someone else's family. I respect their family and their family loves me, but I'm not exactly a part of the family, so I feel a little bit uncomfortable with family events and stuff, and I just keep to myself for the most part. But I do love them. I I respect them, and I appreciate them for trying to incorporate me. Despite the occasional awkwardness of family gatherings, JJ says he's been doing much better now as a young adult at coping with the trauma of his father's abuse. Back when he was younger, his foster parents took him to a counselor, but he would never speak with them. We had to um, persist again um, just recently to get him an opportunity to speak with someone, uh, which he was able to um, open up. He likes this therapist, so that has helped a lot. Through therapy, JJ decided he wants to help other foster children and focus on getting kids into safe homes when they're aging out of foster care. He volunteers with the West Virginia Coalition to End Homelessness. He made a short video for the group to share a story. And this message goes out to all of the youth and young adults currently aging out of the foster care program. I've been in your shoes. Whenever I aged out of foster care, I was fortunate enough to be living with a family that loved me, cared about me, and provided for me while I started developing my own future. I realize that most of you will not be fortunate enough to find yourself in these sorts of circumstances, and for that, I am truly sorry. But you do not have to go through this alone. 
Remarkably, JJ isn't bitter as he describes his childhood. In fact, I can tell he's learned to discover humor, even in the darkness. As he hugs his enormous therapy dog, Pepper, he tells her it's going to be all right. He gives her a sip of his water from his water bottle, and she laps it up and returns his affection with a kiss. Give kisses. Give kisses. Ew. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Roxy Todd in Glenville, West Virginia. On our website, you can see the video JJ made to try to urge other teens in foster care not to give up. Watch it at wvpublic.org. We came across another inspiring young person who was also a former foster child, Lauren Hensley. Much like JJ, she found a home and her foster mother, Melissa, adopted her. Earlier this year, Lauren wrote an essay about what she wants to do when she grows up. Here she is reading it. When I grow up, I want to be a child psychologist because I would understand what children are going through. Since I was previously a foster child, I can relate to what is happening to the child. I I would tell them that they are not alone and that what happened to them is not their fault. They shouldn't take what their parents did out on themselves. I I want them to be able to conquer their world. They need to understand their futures can be amazing to as long as they dream and believe. I want them to know that they can follow their own path no matter who their family is. They should know that there is a family who is willing to love them with all their hearts. Each individual child is a blessing and a gift from God and a gift should be taken care of. I believe that children can grow up and change the world if they tried. One of my favorite quotes is, it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from, the ability to triumph begins with you always uh, by Oprah Winfrey. I believe that if I try, I can impact, encourage, and inspire children to do amazing things. That was Lauren Hensley, a student at Chapmanville Middle School in Logan County, West Virginia. She wrote that essay for the West Virginia Treasurer's Essay Contest. We've reached out to Lauren to ask if she has any advice for children who might be feeling lonely or what has kept her going during tough times. Lauren sent us a handwritten letter. She writes, To all foster children out there, I know you're scared. I know you're hurt. You're sad, mad, and you think what happened is your fault. But it's not. You're too innocent for it to be your fault. I know there are so many strange people telling you everything's going to be all right. You're probably wondering, how do they know? You have to be brave. In a tunnel of darkness, there is always a light at the end. You have to be strong and trust the adults. They're just trying to help you, physically and mentally. One day, you'll be a kid again. Thank you so much, Lauren. We've posted a copy of her letter on our website, wvpublic.org. Up next, 12 foster children are challenging the state of West Virginia to make changes to the foster care system. We'll hear from one of the kids, who's now 18, talk about what he would like to see happen to improve foster care for children. You're listening to Inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia 
with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Today on Inside Appalachia, we are exploring family ties, which are often unconventional. We just heard from two young people about experiencing the uncertainty of being taken from their families and put into foster care. And they aren't alone. There are more than 400,000 children across the U.S. currently in the foster system. Taking care of all these kids is a massive undertaking, overseen by government workers who are overworked and agencies that are historically underfunded. West Virginia's foster care system has been completely overwhelmed. And while the state government points to improvements in the past several years, others argue those reforms don't go far enough, including 12 foster care children who are now suing the state. I've been in group homes, detention centers, emergency shelters. I've been in just about every placement they could possibly put a kid in all in one short childhood. That's 18-year-old Jared Mitchell, one of the plaintiffs. He and others say the state still hasn't fully reckoned with one of its biggest shortfalls when it comes to foster care. That too many kids, especially teenagers, are placed in institutional living facilities. Roxy Todd has the story. Back in 2015, the Department of Justice found that in West Virginia, children with mental health conditions are being institutionalized for too long. Four years later, West Virginia and the DOJ signed an agreement that they would work together to expand children's mental health services throughout the state. The state DHHR vowed to reduce the number of foster care children who are placed in psychiatric hospitals, group homes, and shelters. At a recent Zoom meeting hosted by the DHHR, Lawyers from the DOJ acknowledged that there's still a long way to go. We all knew when we signed the agreement that this system reform is a long-term system reform. The DHHR has submitted a plan to the DOJ to address their concerns, which will go out for public review in January. Meanwhile, the agency has implemented several programs that aim to keep more children with their families or in their communities instead of sending them out of state or to larger facilities. DOJ attorney Haley Van Arum commended these efforts. Um, I'm really excited. The state has done a lot of work in the midst of COVID in the last year to really get some of these services in place and put down the building blocks. And we're really excited to see where that's going from here. As a result, the number of foster children in institutional settings has decreased since 2015, from 1,100 kids to just over 800 this year. But a recent lawsuit filed in federal court last year says these changes aren't enough. They have a lot of good policies, but they're not implementing them. Marsha Lowry is a lawyer with A Better Childhood, also known as ABC, a national child advocacy group. She's part of the team that filed the lawsuit against the state of West Virginia on behalf of 12 foster care children. The suit claims they were mistreated and shuffled between, quote, inadequate and dangerous placements, forced to unnecessarily languish in foster care for years, end quote. The state DHHR disputes that these issues are widespread. According to the DHHR, 12% of children who are in the agency's custody live in institutional settings, what the state calls residential treatment programs. For teenagers, the rate is much higher, 44%. 
18-year-old Jared Mitchell is one of the plaintiffs in the ABC suit who says he was shuffled between group homes, shelters, and psychiatric hospitals from age 11 until he aged out of foster care. When I was 12, my worker had sent me to a residential group home for boys that had committed a sex offense, and I didn't commit a sex offense. A judge later found that although the DHHR investigated Mitchell for sexual misconduct, they never brought any charges or presented any evidence in court. And yet he wound up in a group home in Tennessee, where most residents were over the age of 15 and had charges pending against them for sex offenses, including rape. Like, I was mad that I was around that type of environment and I didn't need to be. It got to my head. It started making me, like, depressed and it started making me, like, think, like, man, I'm never going to get out. Mitchell felt uncomfortable at the facility and says he begged his caseworker to move him. But he remained there for a year and a half. Later, when Mitchell was 16, he was sent to a maximum security detention center in Boone County, West Virginia. He alleges the only reason he was placed in this prison-like environment was because there were no emergency shelters available. Most nights, I would wake up and my back would be stiff or my neck would hurt because I'm sleeping on pretty much bare sheet metal. He spent his 17th birthday behind bars. I was depressed, not because I wasn't getting any gifts or nothing, but because I had no one that I actually cared about or no one that I trusted to spend time with me for my birthday. Mitchell's former lawyer, Scott Drisco, says stories like these are too common in West Virginia. I have children in Pennsylvania, um, Virginia, Florida, uh, all up and down the East Coast. And uh, I think that we need to focus on getting them the services here at home instead of sending them abroad. And that's one of the main arguments of the ABC lawsuit, that the state of West Virginia sends too many children to live in out-of-state institutions. The state argues that the lawsuit is unfounded, and they're already making reforms that will fix these problems. They've also filed a request to have Jared Mitchell removed from the lawsuit as a plaintiff on the grounds that he was not in foster care at the time the suit was filed. This past year, state lawmakers passed bipartisan legislation aimed at improving the system. This new law is still in its infancy, so it's not clear yet if it will result in fewer children placed in residential care. Jeff Pack, a member of the House of Delegates from Raleigh County, was a lead sponsor on the bill. Part of the problem is that there are um, demographics of foster children that are hard to place. Among other things, this law provides more money toward placing foster care teenagers and children with behavioral problems. The the reimbursement rate from the state uh, per day is increased for uh, demographics of kids that are harder to place. And that was supposed to be effective December 1st, but they've um, hit a little snag with that, so it may be into next year before that's um, functional. The law doesn't reduce the caseloads for CPS workers. That's one of the main changes to foster care that Jared Mitchell and the other plaintiffs in the ABC case say they want. I just hope for it to better the system and change it and supply more workers and actually help kids out instead of putting them in placements over and over again just because they don't know what to do with them. I don't think that's fair to the children. Mitchell says he rarely saw social workers, and when he did, they seemed ready to judge him. I was a child, a very young child at that, facing a courtroom. I definitely needed, like, 
a bigger brother, like someone, not exactly a bigger brother, but someone that could teach me how to get through it. At times, Mitchell said he lost hope that he would ever be free. But something changed for him when he turned 17. Remember how he woke up inside a maximum security detention center on his 17th birthday? Later that day, he had a surprise. When we had went to the dining hall for dinner, the cook had put a piece of cake on my, on my uh, tray. It was a small gesture, but it made a big difference. After that, it was like I started getting just a little bit more hope. He began thinking about the future, and he reached out to his uncle and aunt in Cleveland. They offered to take him in once he aged out of foster care. Mitchell lives there now, in their home. He dreams of becoming a tattoo artist and opening his own shop. Because whenever I was locked up and putting all these placements back to back, I had found one coping skill and I was drawing. One of his reoccurring themes is Mickey Mouse. For me, Mickey Mouse is a symbolization for me to where I never had a childhood. So it's it was like a constant reminder to if I ever have a son to make sure he has a good childhood or forever have a daughter, make sure she has a good childhood. During our interview, I asked Mitchell if he would draw something that's important to him. He sat down and drew an intricate design with the words, stand up for children at the center of the page. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Roxy Todd. Jared Mitchell is one of 12 plaintiffs in the case against the state of West Virginia. But lawyers are asking that this lawsuit be considered a class action lawsuit on behalf of nearly 7,000 children. A ruling on that decision is still pending. The case is expected to go to trial sometime in 2021. The state of West Virginia has filed a motion to dismiss the lawsuit. They dispute the findings in the complaint. A longer statement provided by the West Virginia Health and Human Resources Department is available on our website, wvpublic.org. State officials declined a request to do a recorded interview for this story. Scientists know that traumatic experiences like abuse, neglect, parents divorcing, even a house fire can negatively impact a child's ability to thrive. But childhood trauma doesn't guarantee someone is doomed to lead an anonymous life. Marilyn Monroe spent several years in an orphanage, and Louis Armstrong, James Dean, and John Lennon were all raised by extended family members. And Colin Kaepernick and Steve Jobs were adopted, to just name a few examples. Children in foster care each have very different stories to tell, even within a single family, like Willie, Mike, and Howie McCormick, three brothers who were taken into foster care in the 1990s when they were in middle school. Howie is the youngest brother. He was 12 years old at the time. I was like next door neighbor's house, upstairs in that apartment playing video games. And I remember Willie coming upstairs and knocking on the door and saying, Howie, we got to go. We got to go. And I'm like, uh, what do you mean? And he's like, there's people here to take us away. Pretty much is what it sounded like. And uh, I looked out the window and I see all these black cars and state troopers like parked up in our driveway in our yard. I'm like, well, that's weird. So I uh, walked downstairs and across and they were just telling us to get like a 
bag of clothes pretty much. Uh, it was like an old night bag and um, gather it up and get in the car. And I remember mom sitting at her desk, just kind of like being mad and upset, not just kind of like staring off and not saying much. And um, so I went, I went in, gathered up my stuff, tried to get as many comic books as I could. Um, and then we went out to the car and I remember, you know, Willie, as we were leaving, was like yelling back at mom saying, don't worry, mom, we'll be back tonight or we'll be back tomorrow or something like that. And, and that's pretty much all I remember about that. Other than I'm thinking like, I, I don't know what's going on. Shirley really doesn't know what's going on. None of us really know what's going on. So we don't know when we're going to be back or why we're even leaving or anything. Like I didn't, I mean, I knew we weren't in school, so I don't even know if I had a thought as to whether that had anything to do with it or not. But yeah, just uh, caseworkers and police and dark vehicles. And <laughs> that's that's pretty much what I remember. Their mother was accused of neglect, in particular educational neglect, since none of these three brothers had been attending school regularly. The three brothers were sent to live with an emergency foster family for a few days. It was the last time all three of them would live under the same roof. Here's Willie, the oldest brother, talking about an incident that started one Sunday evening while he was on the phone talking with their mother. He remembers it was only a few days after Child Protective Services had taken them from her. These people that were watching us, which I'm not going to name, even though I remember their names, um, they uh, they were trying to grab at the phone from me, just literally trying to yank it. I th- and then I think the the lady actually just disconnected it from the wall, as I recall, just to get me off the phone. And so uh, I went to bed highly upset. I was just fuming. I couldn't get any sleep that night. So when I get up the next morning, I, just, I can't even really function. And then they dragged me out. They were actually going to take me out out of the, the house. With the, they, had, they called the sheriff's office. They dragged me out and put me in handcuffs. I don't know if you guys saw that or not. No, we didn't. I, didn't. I think no, we were gone, but I remember. We heard about it. They did that. Yeah. yeah. They were going to take me out in my underwear, guys. Like, I hadn't even gotten dressed yet. These people had just thought I was being, you know, obstinate and and everything i just went, really wasn't feeling good after the way that we were treated the previous night i couldn't even function and then i didn't see you guys again from i think months did they drive me up what they did is they 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 put me they took me to camc the you know to the hospital river park had, yeah yeah they had they had some intern who didn't even have a degree to interview me put in his notes i found out later that uh, he deemed that he felt I was suicidal from whatever you know, thought he got from, from talking to me. And I was there for two months. After he was released from the psychiatric ward at the hospital, Willie was sent to live in a group home in Huntington, where he basically lived until he turned 18. Meanwhile, the other two brothers, Mike and Howie, were sent to live with another foster family for several months. The boys remember dozens of foster kids coming in and out of this house. And Mike, the middle child, says he didn't get along with one of the other boys. And we ended up getting into like little altercations here and there all over the place. And then one day he, we ended up at the top of the stairs getting into a fight. He pushes me down the stairs. 
I go tumbling all the way down. I'm at the bottom, not in a good mood. I fall. I can't get up. I fall and I can't get up. And then uh, Sally comes running in. So the next thing I know, uh, social workers are showing up again and I'm leaving. And Howie is staying there. And I ended up going to, I went from there to like Huntington Child Shelter for, I don't know, three or four days, which was my first time being completely by myself. And then, and then going from there to Davis Child Shelter. So from that point on, Mike was sent to live in shelters and group homes while his brother Howie continued to live with foster families. Mike says his experience wasn't that bad. He remembers before entering the foster system, there was a lot of chaos in his life. They moved around and lived in a lot of different houses, but in group homes, life had a lot more structure. He remembers sports and extracurricular activities, and he recalls one place in Greenbrier County. We did a lot of different activities. They kept the kids busy, like David Stewart. They had their own their own swimming pool and their own gymnasium. They scheduled activities. Uh, we went and did um, all kinds of different stuff, camping, canoeing, hiking. Uh, and this was like a mixed facility with boys and girls because they had a, a girl's cottage as well. Um, you know, they had summer programs that kept the kids working all summer. I mean, I worked and learned how to change the oil on a car, how to use all kinds of different tools and stuff in a shop uh, at school there. I uh, learned how to use like a bandsaw and a rotor saw and a drill press and all these different things. So I stayed busy and active and out of trouble. Mike took advantage of state resources that paid for him to go to college. He got an undergraduate degree in history and then a master's in teaching from Marshall University. Now he teaches at Lincoln County High School in Southern West Virginia. And Howie, he's a photographer and Willie now sells cars. They're doing okay, despite the fact that they didn't get to spend a lot of their middle and high school years together. Willie says he had focused a lot of his attention on not getting into trouble so that he could be free once he turned 18. My whole thing is I just never wanted to go back to that situation again. And there's so many people that just, I think, accepted that as, you know, these four walls or this facility, this is this is what my life has become. I said, no, I'm, I'm, I don't ever want to see this again. So I did as much as I could to get as far away from it as possible. Again, here's the youngest brother, Howie, who was 12 when he entered foster care. I know that other people's experiences were far different than than mine, far different than, like, even Willie's experience is a lot different than mine or Mike's. Um, and then I know people who have had experiences far worse than what Willie dealt with. Um, and, <clears throat> and that's just, you know, between getting juggled between different homes where it might be um, a more abusive or neglectful whatever situation than what they were taken out of, they get put into, you know, in foster care. Um, I've seen and heard of that happening. Um, so I don't want to jump to saying, you know, don't feel sorry for yourself, make the best out of the situation, that kind of thing, because I know it's not as easy as it was from, for us. 
middle brother, Mike, had this to say to any child who finds themselves in a situation that they don't think is fair. You don't learn from winning all the time. I mean, you know, you gotta, you have to, you have to win. You learn from, from your experience, the things that, that don't go right, how you handle it, you know, and then a lot of times you really have to understand that there are a lot of things that just aren't in your control. You know, as 12, 13, 14 year olds, we had no control over anything that happened to us. The only thing that we could control was how we reacted to it, you know, and then how we reacted to different things at the time is what put us where we are. I guess the one skill that we got out of all of this is just the, I think we, we all can adapt well to whatever situation we're in, you know, because we all ended up very differently. But, you know, how he does his own thing, photographer, Willie sells cars, I'm a school teacher. It's, you know, we, we, we all adapt to the situations that we're in and we continuously adapt because of those skills that we learned because we had to adapt. We were in one place that was, you know, very strict and regimented. We were in another placement that had different sets of rules. We were in another placement that had a different set of rules. Every place was a little bit different. So we all have to, you have to learn how to adapt. As they sit and talk over this recorded Zoom call, you can hear that Mike, Howie, and Willie share a lot of the same qualities that brothers do. They're close. Despite the struggles and separation, they've continued to be a part of each other's lives. Their story was recorded by Glennis Board, and Roxy Todd and Xander Alloy also helped produce. final story, we'll learn about a family who formed a bond over the years through music. More than a few families with strong musical traditions call Appalachia home. West Virginia alone has the Hammonds and the Kessingers, talented kin known worldwide for the mountain music they play. But for Lucas Paisley, a fiddler, banjo player, and singer-songwriter from North Carolina, family musical traditions were not some flowing stream to draw from. In fact, they were more of a deep spring, hidden in plain sight. Trevor McKenzie tells the story. Lucas Paisley grew up in a musical family in Allegheny County. Guitarists and singers, um, they would sing for weddings and churches and revivals. But the family didn't always appreciate musicians, especially fiddlers. Here's how his grandmother, Ellen Brooks, remembers it. What did Pa Butchie say about Uncle Guy? What did he say about fiddlers or men who makes music? That a man who made music wasn't worth a hoot for another thing. <laughs> the family did eventually warm to fiddlers, but Lucas was well into his late teens before he connected with traditional music and his family's musical heritage. When I was a teenager, I was kind of heading towards acoustic music, and I'd grown up with Ellen and gospel songs and country, but I just sort of felt like I was fumbling in the dark. I, I knew I was kind of looking and hungry for something, but I didn't know exactly what it was. It wasn't until Lucas attended Appalachian State University that he began finding his way. He took up fiddle and banjo and started going to old-time jam sessions. 
I went to this jam uh, somewhere in Wilkes County, and there was this old man there, and uh, and he was just amazing. The way he held the bow and, and the tunes that he played and the feel of it, um, it was just exactly what, what I was hungry for, and I was so excited. And I came home, and or I came up to Ellen's house, and I said, I have found my hero fiddler. And I was so excited. I said, I'm going to learn to play just like him. And Ellen was real interested, and she said, well, who is it? Who, who, who is it? And I said, his name is Fred McBride. And she slammed that. <laughs> she kind of went straight up in her chair, and she popped that recliner down and sat up. And she said, Fred McBride, she said, you've seen him at every family reunion you've been to since you were a kid. I said, what? Well, I just thought it was funny. <laughs> he had been with him every summer of his life at the family reunion and didn't know it. <laughs> the next week, Lucas went to see Fred and told him they were cousins. And Fred just couldn't believe it either. And we were... Uh, we immediately fell into a very, very close relationship. And I spent years just visiting with Fred and recording Fred and learning everything that I could from Fred. Fred McBride's fiddling carried a distinctive sound, born on the borders of northwestern North Carolina and southwestern Virginia. It's a sound driven by dancing. Yeah, I think that dancing is the main thing that makes the music the way that it is along the Virginia and North Carolina line. That's Julie Shepard Powell, an assistant professor at Appalachian State University, who focuses on Appalachian music traditions. Even when they're fiddling a slow tune, they're not just fiddling it for you to listen to, they're fiddling for you to get up and two-step or waltz sometimes, two-stepping is more common in that area. Um, and of course, the kind of hard-driving fiddle tunes that make dancers want to get out of their seat and flat foot or clog. That's Lucas with his band Gap Civil playing Lost Indian, the same tune we heard from Fred McBride. Lucas even holds his fiddle the same way Fred did. They kind of hold hold the fiddle down on their chest um, and then, you know, draw the bow across that way. And I don't know if it gives it a different sound or if it has to do with kind of the angle of the bow, but, but they're all very rhythmic fiddlers. The hard driving, the playing for dancers. One of the things that strikes me about Lucas that I think is a lot like Fred is that he is willing to play all kinds of music, even though I would argue he's one of the best traditional old-time fiddle players, really steeped in the place and the community where his music is coming from. That connection to place runs deep for Lucas and his musical family. His great uncle, Lon Brooks, was a fiddle mentor to Fred McBride, and he wrote this tune, Bullhead Mountain Rag. Bullhead Mountain, you can see it from right here. I guess you don't have a video, but well, well when you leave, but that, it's right behind those trees right there. Lucas says the mountain was so important to his family that when Lon's mother was on her deathbed, 
She asked to be taken out onto the porch of the family home to see it one last time. When I, when I finally found um, our music, it was, it was the music itself, but then it was like a big family reunion uh, somehow. And, and the whole, all of these cousins, all of Ellen's first cousins, um, once they found out I was interested in the music, just a whole world opened up uh, in the family for me. In fact, the family recently completed an album featuring four generations of songwriting, with some songs penned by Ellen almost half a century ago. I've been writing songs since I was five years old, according to Mama. When I learned to write, I would start putting my songs down. And I've been writing songs ever since. When God spoke to me and told me I must do more work for him. Like this gospel song, Back to the Maker. I said, Father, you must understand I came. You know the mistakes I have made, the problems I have had. I just couldn't go around acting like a saint. The album also includes songs by Lucas's father, by Lucas, and by his 16-year-old daughter, Hazel. As part of the youngest generation in a family of traditional musicians, Hazel is not afraid to push boundaries. I got into like more folksy guitar because I've been playing just like the pork chop, you know, style. And when I started, I couldn't do it at all. It was so hard for me just to get a different rhythm down. I had her trained well as a good old time guitarist. <laughs> yeah, it took me a solid month probably <laughs> to break it. <laughs> <laughs> As for Ellen, who's now 82, she's thrilled to be making an album with her family. Well, that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. I'll be famous. I don't write anything but good songs. <laughs> One of those songs is Soul Living On, the title track of the family's album. You write the words that I've left unwritten. You go to places I have never gone. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Trevor McKenzie in Allegheny County, North Carolina. And your soul will be my soul living on. Your soul will be my soul living on. Your soul will be my soul. Trevor McKenzie is a part of our Inside Appalachia Folkways reporting corps. And in the interest of full disclosure, Trevor performs on a few of the songs in the album Lucas Paisley produced called Souls Living On. Today, we got a chance to celebrate families, all types of families, those that are related but just had misconnections, finding each other many years later, but also kids who had to create their own families with people they don't necessarily share blood ties with, just people who've helped them along their journey. And you know what? I think that's pretty incredible. People can be so resilient especially kids, and a little kindness and love can go a long way here in the mountains.
Oh, and before we go, I want to share a sneak peek of what we're cooking up for next week's show. We talk about holiday foods and some of your favorite holiday traditions. Many of you, our listeners, send in some lovely recipes and stories about the foods your family loves to make during the holidays. My co-host Mason Adams sits down with his mom to talk about baking cookies during the holidays, which led his mom to divulge a secret. Oh, goodness, I love to make cookies, and I would be up to 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning making cookies. What were you doing up so late at night making cookies? That's the secret life of mom that I didn't know about (laughs) because I was sleeping. We'll hear from folks across Appalachia talk food, family, and how some traditions begin with gestures of kindness. I have a big family, so there are seven kids. She kind of took all of us kids under her wing, and she always used to make strawberry shortcake and have all the kids over. And I sit down with my grandmother to learn the story behind our family tradition of making Stollen, a special German sweet bread that she makes each Christmas. You know, food, nostalgia, and traditions really can bring us back to a certain magic feeling that a lot of us remember from our childhood. So I hope you'll join us. You can listen to our special holiday episode of Inside Appalachia next week. Catch the podcast at wvpublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Lucas Paisley, Fred McBride, Dinosaur Burps, John R. Miller, and Marisa Anderson. Roxy Todd is our producer, Eric Douglas is our associate producer, and our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Glennis Board edited our show this week, and Catherine Moore also helped edit. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens, and Xander Alloy helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There you can also subscribe or download all of our stories or look for the Inside Appalachia podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.